Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's discussion is titled "The Truth About Aurangzeb," and to discuss that, I have with me Aditya Kovalekar. Aditya, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here, Kushal. So, Aditya, before we get into the discussion uh, on Aurangzeb, uh, I'll request you. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, so, good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> I am Aditya Kuvalekar. I am uh, I am a lecturer at the University of Essex in the UK. Uh, I am a lecturer in economics. So, I am not a historian um, by training, but I am passionate about history. So for living, I teach and do a bit of research in economics, uh, uh, and uh, as a passion, I read history and learn from people about history, and occasionally try to write something about it. So Aditya, obviously, uh, today's podcast was a direct result of a beautiful essay that uh, you co-wrote uh, with Kedar Falke. You know. in the open magazine which was titled the truth about aurangzeb was the mughal emperor a fanatic now now aditya i i have to start with this question because uh, you know in the beginning of the essay there's a very interesting uh, uh, i don't know how to say um line that you say that you both of you use richard m eaton and his uh thesis or his hypothesis as uh, the subject of analysis and i i have to start with this i know otherwise it's unfair i think in my opinion I, at least in my brain i think it's unfair so l- let's go like this why did you guys choose richard eaton and maybe you know somebody might come back to you guys and say oh, why not any other research let's say audrey so um, now that that's a good question um So first of all, I think purely from a scholarship perspective, uh, Eaton's work uh, appears long before um, Audrey's. But more importantly, I think a lot of people um, have written about Aurangzeb uh, in different forms. We wanted to focus on uh, somewhat scholarly and somewhat serious work, so we decided to go with Eaton. All right. So so. so it's obviously so if, so when it comes to maybe considering the work on aurangzeb you guys considered eaton now here's the thing aditya let's so let's first before we get into the nitty gritties of the essays and that now when one does an analysis of a subject and you know history is also another one of those that involves going back looking at resources of uh, uh, reading material now here's the thing aditya how does one decipher so my first question to you is when you were researching i mean obviously you and kedar both but this is more like a general subject so when one does an analysis of a subject how do how do you go about what's your preparation that that let's let's first understand so how did you guys prepare for the subject you know it's an essay you're writing you want to focus on aurangzeb which is a very specific personality so how what was the process where you were like okay i want to focus on these books and this material and then i'm going to go from point a to point b how did you guys uh, go about doing that so uh, you know i mean this piece uh, in some sense is a work i would say of several 
years in the sense that um, that I had written uh, for a different portal a piece a few years ago on Aurangzeb, which was not as well researched as this one. And I mean, Kedar is a is an insanely uh, knowledgeable historian. I mean, he, he is quite renowned actually in Maharashtra. He speaks mostly in Marathi. So probably your audience uh, may not have heard about him, but he, I mean, he's an ens- walking, talking encyclopedia. And I, um, so I was introduced to him by actually Dr. Uday Kulkarni, the author of uh, several books on history, Solstice at Panipat to recently, the Maratha century. So we got talking and then uh, coincidentally, it so happened that recently again, these attempts um, were revived of, you know, glory, may, may not be glorifying, but sort of saying that Aurangzeb's uh, demolitions of temples. So, you, you know, like at this point that he demolished temples uh, seems nearly uncontested. So now then the, the, the new trend has been to then give a political color to it. Uh, when I say give a political color, I'm obviously saying that I vehemently disagree with that um, argument. But that was the argument that that the motive were largely political. Now, when you hear or see such positions, and actually, so this goes back to the, the earlier question you asked about Eton. So Eton has a famous paper um, in the, so what, let me just look up the journal. It's Journal of Islamic Studies uh, from September 2000 where uh, temple desecrations and Indo-Muslim states. Now, I had read that paper uh, reasonably carefully a few years ago, and I reread it, and I felt that that needed to be countered, at, at least in the case of Aurangzeb. Uh, so, so, so then the process was Kedar and I spoke, and Kedar obviously knew a lot of things inside out. I had some things prepared from my old piece, so we merged things together. I learned more from Kedar. He basically helped me, like guided me to read more material, and then that's how the piece came about. All right. So now in the piece, it's very interesting. So you guys have focused on three parts, right? So obviously we'll mm-hmm. discuss all the three parts, but just for the benefit of our you know viewers or listeners, I just wanted to say. So the first part is you guys focus on why Aurangzeb, you know, kind of demolished temples or whatever the political calculations or whether it is uh, it was religious iconoclasm or what it was not. The next was the number of temples itself that are claimed to be demolished. And the third is, you know, you know, the, the historians and that's about the resources. So let's mm-hmm. now focus on, you know, this subject point number one itself. Now, this is something mm-hmm. very interesting, uh, Aditya. So when we talk about, you know, Political calculations—that that word itself. Let's 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 mm-hmm. latch on to that first. Now, yeah. I have never gotten this. Uh, the entire, sc- I I don't know. No, no. Entire. I don't know if I should use, uh, uh, like, scholarship as the word, or I don't know what word should I use when I say this. But I, I, look, I'm trying to be as fair as possible, so I'll use the word scholarship. You know, this 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 whole thing that, you know, oh, you have to look at it from a certain prism. And that prism is always, there are no religious motives involved. It is always political. And and so let's first try and, I because I think it's the duty of any discussion to first steel man an argument. 
So, Aditya, can we first start by saying what is the argument itself when we talk about this political inclination? So, could you explain to the listeners and the viewers what exactly is their argument when they say on this temple destruction and the motive of temple destruction? Uh, sure. So, so, uh, so Eaton in his paper argued, and I'm sure he was not the last one, a first one, that that medieval or medieval India or early modern uh, India, whichever way you call it, uh, was obviously a place full of conflicts. There were there were wars. Kings were fighting against each other, and there were constant um, churning of power. And the argument goes, so it's actually, uh, to be fair to Eaton, I mean, it's a bit subtle, like uh, an argument that he has made, because what he has said is at a high level is that temples were uh, places of religious act, uh, were places of economic importance as well. Like often kings would give patronage to local temples and they would, the deity would be viewed as someone who is blessing the king and so on. And therefore, when in times of war, um, say, uh, one king wins against the other, then the victorious king would have um, a tendency to desecrate the place of worship for for the, uh, the losing king to sort of assert his power and also to destroy that place of worship because that was also uh, like uh, motives of wars are often economic. Uh, perhaps here I could be biased as an economist, but I, I agree with this position that economic motives are very important. So this mm-hmm. was this is the thing now, but he doesn't stop at that. So I, I, I'll take a bit of time in explaining in, in totality because, because, you know, a natural question then would be that, sure, if... If if you are someone who thinks that religious motives were more important than political, then you would say, okay, in that case, uh, you should see when a Hindu king, um, let's say, defeats a Muslim uh, king, you should see Hindu kings destroying mosques, number one, if the motives were political. Uh, num- like if you just wanted, if the, if the sort of the rule of thumb was to destroy a place of worship close to the losing king, then you should see this way argument uh, like destructions happening this way also. And importantly, you should also see between two Muslim rulers and between two Hindu rulers, correspondingly places of worship being desecrated. And if you go, if you look at the evidence, it does not seem that that Hindu rulers have destroyed mosques after winning wars. Or, uh, or between two Hindu kings, they have destroyed each other's temples. So that is so. So to this, Eaton's argument is that in the, like while the Hindu rulers haven't destroyed temples, they have looted each other's temples, and mosques were actually quite separate from the rulers, uh, like like the king itself, and therefore mosques were not susceptible to violence in times of war this was this is the position that eaton and all have uh, so uh, so i'm coming back to your question that, that the the political motive argument is this that the reason why you see that 
uh, a lot of temples being destroyed in medieval India is precisely because there were wars where Hindus were losing often, and and since the motives were political, as a byproduct, their temples were also being destroyed. This is their position. Yeah, but this is very interesting, right? As if you know, see, see we can never deny there are political motives in in anything. I think that would be naive, but. But, uh, you know, the classic adage would be that while political motives might be, in some cases, a necessary condition, but it definitely is not a sufficient condition. Right, Aditya? Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, at the, like, this is, I, I view that this is a very extreme position to say that it was entirely political and almost nothing about religious. And I mean, like, it's not like they have... so. There is actually, uh, uh, where do I start? But I mean, there is, there is some work. Uh, so, so first of all, Eaton, when he takes this position that most of the demolitions were political, uh, how many demolitions is he looking at? I mean, he, during Aurangzeb's time, he, so Eaton's paper, I, I highly encourage the readers of this show to read that paper just to, just to see what the, what this, what, the uh, what people like Eaton and all are saying. I mean, in Aurangzeb's time, he has, I think, if I remember correctly, less than a dozen te temples destroyed. Is the claim in the paper? Now, mm -hmm. I, it's to me, it's just uh, just false. But once you are you have reduced the number to ten temple desecrations, let's say, and then you find like coincidental wars around those destructions then you can always create a story that, you know, these wars were the reason. So uh, I, I don't think that uh, the world is as binary as that, as you said, that it's uh, nobody will deny that there would be like when Aurangzeb was ruling, let's say, from Delhi, was there not a single temple in Delhi? Of course, he would have allowed some temples to be there in Delhi. But the question really is of relative importance. What was it? And that, to, in my mind, does not uh, is not a particularly ambiguous thing. And at this point, I want to clarify one thing. Since since this is uh, like this, these taking any position on this issue can be very costly. So I have clarified this also in the we have clarified this in the piece that whatever Aurangzeb did. Whichever you think was the motive, we do not think that this has any bearing on the modern Indian or any Muslims. Like they have nothing to defend or agree or disagree with. So I think this false equivalence where if you criticize Aurangzeb, somehow it's a critique of, uh, of today's uh, Muslims. I think that, false, that equivalence has to be broken down for us to seriously analyze Aurangzeb just as himself without getting getting muddled in any contemporary politics. No, I couldn't agree more with you. And I find this entire line of argumentation actually very hilarious, Aditya. And I'll explain why. I've always said this many times on other shows and on this show also, 
you know imagine you know there is absolute agreement that the british did bad things to us in india in almost all academic circles it's not like you know today some british citizen comes to india we are going to be hey idhar aa tune aise kyu kiya mere sath no we don't do that to britishers now so why is this direct assumption that because you know somebody who happened to be muslim by religion who came here and yes there was a religious element involved in whatever was happening in the past we're going to blame the people today who have just happened to be in the same religion for that i think a it it is a very condescending view towards you know the the hindus and other non muslim religions in india that you know we are such dunderheads that we will take it out on them i think i find it very condescending if somebody tells me that i am i am literally going to think like that i find it insulting to my intelligence and secondly here what are we doing i mean see uh denialism does not help things right in a very weird way aditya if we really wanted genuine truth and reconciliation in india the best way for truth and reconciliation is having an open discussion about our past not by denying it right i mean here the opinion is clearly divided right I mean, there is one school of thought which has dominated a lot of our historical narrative which disagree with this view that uh, that history should be told as it was their, their view is that you should present it as they did because that's according to them is a way of maintaining communal harmony now uh i don't know so i, I obviously disagree with that view but to the extent that uh, and i agree with you that it's it's downright i think it's downright offensive to think that uh, because aurangzeb did xyz we will take it out on today's muslims uh but It, it is the view. I mean, it's just uh, they. They think. I. I think somewhere they think that uh, where will this end? That is the question in their mind. That fine. Today you will not take it on our uh, take it out on our Zeb, but somebody else might uh, do. And so it's best to just downplay the whole uh, whole episode. Now I think the issue with that strategy, though, even if one agrees with that. is that you don't control every channel of information in the past you did and mm-hmm. so it was to some extent possible but in today's world i mean how much are you going to deny unless you 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 know burn down all the primary evidence i mean a lot of stuff that we have quoted in our piece is uh, it comes from primary or like secondary sources which are basically just quoting primary sources which are there to see for everyone so when information is as readily available as this uh i i think it's it's a completely ridiculous strategy to um to then try to you know uh, try to control information to this uh, by and think that people will not find out and therefore things will be under control i mean then actually the reaction is much worse because when people find out they they think that they have been cheated for so many years and then they they turn more uh, probably they could turn more extreme so uh, so to that extent i, I disagree with the the strategy but i think that's the view all right aditya now take let's take the bull by the horns so part 1 which is very important so what is the record of aurangzeb when it comes to um, you know temple demolition and it's very interesting because uh, let's start from you know his farmans or imperial orders let's let's mm-hmm. get into a little bit of historical data and i would request you because you know in the essay you talk about masiri alamgiri and many other things so so could you now give us a little bit of 
actual evidence as to what the what did he do when it comes to temples and demolition oh i mean to to describe what he did uh, as i said if if i bring kedar on the show and get him to talk he will he can talk for 3 hours uh, the the list is really endless i mean so most of our uh, in the piece what we have mostly focused on comes from masiri alamgiri now masiri alamgiri is a is a text is a sort of a chronicle of aurangzeb's uh, uh, rule which was written after he uh, died so it's not like every farman of aurangzeb farman is as the name suggests is a, is a state order so it's not like every farman of aurangzeb has made its way to masiri alamgiri so whatever that the author uh, uh, sakir mustad khan whatever he felt uh was in, important um that is what uh, th- that is what is uh, what went into masiri alamgir now uh <clears throat> yes yeah so um um so so where did uh, yeah yeah i was just looking at one thing yeah so um so after aurangzeb sort of established his rule um he de- he demolished temples in varanasi now there is a famous order of his where he basically says that uh, it is brought to my notice that uh, people are teaching from false books uh, and therefore just uh, all the temples in Var- varanasi should be demolished and then there is a subsequent part where they were indeed demolished he demolished the 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 mathura temple uh, the keshavraya temple uh, and in fact i mean it's it's uh, it's a very grotesque display of his uh, his intolerance in that he he crushed the idols and brought them and planted under another mosque so to be trodden upon uh, he he when he was so in the latter part uh, later part of his life he was uh, almost fully based in maharashtra and he was uh, and there there he basically because he was um, occupied with the war uh, in with marathas so shivaji passed away in 1680 but the war continued forever i mean aurangzeb also died in maharashtra um, and in du- during that war he uh, he he demolished the temple of vithoba temple of pandarpur where so pandarpur for maharashtrians is a very very important site because there is a vithoba temple is like one of the holiest sites in in maharashtra so that temple was destroyed he de- destroyed um, he also i think if i remember correctly which is not in the essay he destroyed a temple at on a fort called vasantgarh and actually he not just that he he uh, got a cow killed there Uh, on vasantgarh now this i if i remember correctly this does not come in masiri alamgiri so there are so le- uh, recently like about 30 40 years ago a few historians uh, got more access to more farmans of aurangzeb and they translated into other language and that's where you find a lot of this evidence so from about 1665 to 1707 you see a lot of temples being destroyed so there were temples destroyed in gujarat in ahmedabad 
there were temples destroyed uh, in maharashtra and then there's a uh, also so actually i i say one thing which is jadunath sarkar uh, so jadunath sarkar uh, was a, was a great historian obviously this uh, the defendants of this political motive theory do not particularly like him but he he has done an enormous amount of work so he has yeah. written a, a big uh, like a series of uh, like big few volumes i think five volumes on history of aurangzeb in the third volume of that there is actually a um, a list of temples that he destroyed and the list is not exhausted uh so which and and uh, i mean there are incidents even before aurangzeb became the the king so even when he was stationed in uh, gujarat um he so if i remember correctly this chintamani mosque chintamani temple i think yeah so this comes in this uh, text called mirati ahmadi which is like a chronicle of gujarat mostly gujarat where he basically again it's the same thing i think this was 1645 he destroyed a temple and had a cow killed in it like uh, and uh, turned yeah had a cow killed in it desecrated so from 1645 to 1707 the the pattern is nearly consistent i mean it's it's not like there is a lot of change in his behavior there is a small episode which uh, where uh, early on immediately after he became the king in uh, i think in 1658 or 59 he had issued a, a famous farman called as banaras farman where he had said that uh, that no new temple should be built and old temple should not be destroyed so that is often uh, touted as evidence that aurangzeb was actually not as intolerant as he was made out but there is a story to of to that which i think we'll come to later it's there in our piece but yeah that's uh, but in short if i have to say this is the list is really endless yeah so, uh, i think you've right uh, rightly put there the list is endless now i want to talk about something uh, which is kind of you know i i honestly i'm very happy that you took this point on in the essay itself where you know this entire claim about the number of temples he destroys now i'll tell you i forgot the name of the historian i think i he's also working i think he's in the united states of america and i i've really earse naam tha unka i forgot his name and he also discussed this on the brown pundits podcast and and you know there's this thing where you know as if you know i i find this entire discussion on aurangzeb and his temple the destruction to be or demolition to be sometimes reaching absurdities like you know oh xyz books have written he destroyed so much how can you take them seriously i mean the point is okay let us assume that we cannot take the actual numbers given by those people yes a lot of times old books and all these things do have a you know a habit of exaggeration that i think anybody who has functioning brain cells will will accept that but to take that and then stroman it to only 12 temples are demolished i mean between 10 12 temples and maybe you know thousands of temples there might be some mid gap also right so it's almost as if if that is not true i can take it down to 12 
now how does one work around this so so my question aditya is that when we are analyzing the data like i know you know sometimes in historical data we say crore log the kind of a thing is always mentioned in multiple historical data i i get that and i and i get the point that many people are trying to say crore log the cannot be reduced to do log the is also equally to so why so a friend of mine he calls this very some he calls this straw man fact checking so you literally create a straw man and then you yeah. fact check the straw man and then you fact check the straw man and destroy the entire argument ergo aurangzeb was awesome how do we deal with this uh i think the short answer is is very difficult i mean i don't think one can deal with this in a scholarly my i my honest view is that because what can you do so i mean uh, you know we so kedar and i have spoken about this um, and hopefully with uh, another economist uh, who i don't know if uh, he or she would want to be named that's why i'm not giving the name uh, we have dis- discussed documenting uh, the list of uh temple desecrations not for anything it's again we don't uh, like not for any religious uh contemporary politics i want to emphasize this but what happens is you know one eaton's paper has become the gold standard in academia for the list of temples that were destroyed during that period so if you are so there are papers written in other fields using data on temple and i'll give you a simple example why why might this data be it's not like people care a lot about always people care only about the religious angles what happens is as 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 an economic question when eaton says and i agree with him that temples were centers of economic importance so uh so one could one could be interested in viewing our understanding what they what does a destruction of an of a place of economic importance do to say long run uh, differences in economic trajectory of two say neighboring locations let's say you have pune and mumbai and say, let's say pune faced some religious violence and today it's way behind mumbai in in economic outcomes so can we attribute that to this conflict so this people need not always be interested in the motive of what did aurangzeb do they can just they but they need some starting point of okay let's look at places that faced a lot of uh, temple desecrations and compare them to places that did not face a lot of temple desecrations now how does one start here so one goes to eaton's database okay here is a list of temples that were destroyed let's go to the map and map them with here and see what is the difference now uh but so so if the starting point is itself so uh, for the lack of better word uh not not particularly reliable mm-hmm. then then what can follow from it also uh becomes a bit uh like hard to uh trust which is again this is not the fault of a researcher they so i as an economist would google up and find okay eaton has a database now i don't have any reason to think that uh, i meaning anyone like has a reason to think that 
this database is seriously underrepresented so and then this database becomes a good starting point for a lot of other research but uh, so 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 coming back to your question then how does one counter this i think yeah. the only way to counter is that you build a database that that is the only way you build a database and then other people can counter it they can say that okay these these uh, claims in your dataset are flawed you claim here a temple was destroyed but it was not you so that I, I, but this is a very very laborious work i mean that is the reason why i was saying that so kedar i and another economist have, have thought of doing this uh, but it 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 is a long project which requires a lot of resources a lot of funding it's not it's not easy uh, but that is the only way i mean uh, and people are open about this it's not i don't think that if you present proper evidence like it there is just no audience for this there is audience there will be some people who will not like it but there will be people who care about scholarship no so there's a very interesting line in the essay itself and i want to read this so so you know i'm going to so so bear with me so so you know you guys say on exaggerations for a moment let us even suppose that claims such as the emperor went to view chittor by his order 63 temples of the place were destroyed this is masari alamgiri page 117 are exaggerated it is an admirable goal to have a more precise estimate of temples that aurangzeb had desecrated but a lower bound on this number is not particularly hard to obtain by examining the primary sources especially since several sites of temples mentioned have been destroyed are publicly accessible therefore to discredit the claims of aurangzeb's bigotry by pointing out a few inaccuracies or exaggerations is counterproductive now this is a very very interesting line of thought that you've taken so if i'm not misunderstanding what you're saying over here is basically okay you know as we we concede the point that when people try to you know it's always there you know for bravado kind of a thing even if he has knocked him out in like 10 seconds he'll be like no no i knocked you out in 5 seconds that kind of a scenario but the yeah. point is that the proof of the pudding is in the eating as they say that archaeology yeah. doesn't lie so even in the list of temples that he talks about maybe there are not 60 or temples but we know quite a few of them which belong to that list that if you dig the archaeology are clearly destroyed so it's definitely not 12 that's what you guys are trying to say right yes absolutely that uh, now whether it's realistically feasible or not like whether we will be allowed to perform archaeological surveys at all these places that's a separate point but if you claim that in chittor when 63 temples were destroyed is the claim you say that no it's not 63 it's zero then for me the job is very easy i have to produce evidence of five and i don't think that is going to be very difficult like there will be you go to places you find uh, destroyed temples it's not that rare i mean um, or you find constructions which bear uh, so so it's very funny eaten in one of his uh, one of his uh, speeches or interviews somewhere uh, says that the mosques reuse the material from temples Now that's uh-huh. a very that's a very interesting euphemism. Like I don't know what to say. I mean, sure, there yes, indeed, there was some reuse, but uh, in you know, in case of Aurangzeb, that is. So, uh, where uh, again, 
one has to go and get the archaeological evidence and i don't think that is very hard to obtain and archaeology as you said does not lie uh, now of course again there are people who don't believe that archaeology or who just don't uh, don't uh, you know even interpret evidence differently from the archaeologist itself that's how i would put it so uh, 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 an example of this actually is something i discovered i think a couple of days ago it's a, it's a bit of a detour it's not related to aurangzeb but i was uh, i was watching uh, a video interview of um, shirin mushbi now i don't know if your uh, audience would know about her she is a very reputed historian of the same period um, where uh, so this this interview was on rajya sabha tv i think in from 2016 or 2015 for indian history congress where uh, somehow the the topic of ayodhya came up and where uh, she said that amongst historians there has never been any debate about ayodhya like there is almost consensus uh, she didn't say was she wasn't explicit but i think what she meant was that there is consensus that there was no temple uh, amongst historians and then she said uh, that uh, that uh, from the from the hindu side there were people uh, who came and one of them was uh, dr uh, ramesh who is a, who was an archaeologist and he also uh, he said that um, actually the inscriptions found at the ayodhya site were actually planted from somewhere else is what he said in court that's what Shirin Mushfi claim. So, out of curiosity, I looked up the Supreme Court judgment, and at uh, pertaining to the parts of uh, Dr. Ramesh, and I, I actually spent a lot of time reading the judgment. I mean, it's not uh, very easy to read a thousand-page judgment. Yeah, it's a thousand-page judgment, man. Uh, yeah. Tell me about it. I read it. I got so bored. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, so, I I didn't read it fully. I'm not saying I just read the uh, the parts pertaining to Dr. Ramesh. and at least there they don't mention uh, that ramesh dr ramesh claimed that these inscriptions were planted from elsewhere he actually at least in the judgment says uh, there's parts pertaining to ramesh say that the this is a 12th uh, century inscription indicating that there was a uh, like from a uh, temple so uh, where exactly did things get lost in translation maybe i misinterpreted or maybe uh, shirin musi misunderstood things i don't know but so archaeology i mean one would hope that archaeological evidence should be enough but that's only a hope uh, finally there are people who will agree there are people who will not agree and no matter what evidence you bring that's going to be the case no but kedar the the, the level of स्कॉलरशिप इन इंडिया मतलब इतना पतन हो चुका है कि द ज्ञान वापी वन वेर क्लियरली पता चलता है बाहर से क्या है वो आई मीन मतलब इट इज सो रिडिक्यूलसली ऑब्वियस बट इवन देयर द डिनाइलिज्म इज देयर सो ऑन ज्ञान वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग सी लाइक आई डोंट वॉन्ट i don't want to say insignificant temples but because that suggests an a, a hierarchy of sorts which i fundamentally disagree with uh, i think all temples are significant to the extent that they are absolutely they are of worship uh, but 
let's say by going by popularity smaller temples which were destroyed uh, those would not make it to say the database of uh, eater and the big ones like ganwapi where you as you say like you go there and uh, you you have to be crazy to still claim that this was not this did not occur so of course they say that it was it occurred but then you bring get an interesting twist which to the story which is what ethan has done in his paper where he says that one has to look at the ganwapi so uh, if i can can i read out the part of the paper from the uh, for you please readers? do please do you know the, the beauty so, of a podcast is we have sufficient time so please do yeah so so let's uh, so i think he, he writes it I, i mean i like his phrasing uh, of course not the so he basically says that one has to see the yeah it was against this so okay yeah i found it uh, so in 1669 there arose a rebellion in banaras among landholders so he says that there was a rebellion uh, and some of some of these rebels were suspected to have helped shivaji escape from agra so as i uh, as we call it in the piece uh, the most uh, i would say remarkable episode in the indian history would be shivaji's escape from agra um, and he says that it was believed that shivaji's escape had been initially facilitated by facilitated by jay singh the great grandson of raja man singh who almost certainly built banaras great vishwanath temple it was against this background that the emperor ordered the destruction of the temple in september 1669 so so eaten like see now it's very to casual reader this sounds very believable right that uh, mm. that that shivaji escaped from agra aurangzeb um, believed that people from banaras helped uh, shivaji escape and uh, and in particular raja jay singh helped him ex- uh, escape and therefore um, the aurangzeb got furious and uh he got the temples destroyed but i mean it's it's i don't know where does one start i mean eaton is a reputed historian so but she so as we write in the piece shivaji fled in 1666 the temples were destroyed in 1669 three years what was aurangzeb doing in between now he was doing something else in between which is actually Mirza Raja Jaising died uh, in that period, and his son uh, Ram Singh became the king. Not just Ram Singh's coronation was attended by uh, by Mirza Raja uh, by Aurangzeb himself. So I so in 1667 I think or 1668 maybe Ram Singh becomes the king, and Aurangzeb attends his procession, uh, his coronation, and blesses him. no so the blesses him is the part that comes from masiri alamgiri but if i remember correctly in, in jadunath sarkar's uh, book of, uh, about jaipur he says actually that aurangzeb even put uh, i may be getting the reference wrong so don't hold me for that but i'm pretty sure it is that that aurangzeb put a tikka on his forehead which is one of the last known instances where he did this mm-hmm. so he uh, put a puts a tikka on his forehead so basically celebrates with ram singh then there is also a subsequent uh, account of like warm dialogues between aurangzeb and ram singh so all of this happens between 66 1666 and 
and then one fine day aurangzeb decides to take revenge of the of shivaji's escape like how does one logically maintain this position i don't know i uh, but this, this is what has been argued and it's even more preposterous if one looks at how it has like the the context the order in masiri alamgiri for the destruction in so all of this came from gyanwapi right you asked how does one deny that so i told you how how eaton denies it which is he claims that it was shivaji's escape from agra that was uh, that was the reason why gyan uh, why vishwanath temple was destroyed it's so you know to the diff- once you want to build a theory i mean you find evidence so that's the short way to put it so so you know that that takes us to the third point of your essay and this is a very important point you know uh, i i know i am saying it in a very weird way but you know there's the big boss make wo line thi bahut famous ho gayi you know there's this female who says in punjabi toda kutta kutta saada kutta toda kutta tommy saada kutta kutta kind of a thing you know and this is the problem when i mean some historians are historians some are colonial historians some are historians and i mean there has to be some standard right aditya now now here's the thing now i remember years ago when i had read eliot and dawson so let me let me let me clarify here i know where this line of argumentation comes from the marxist side because eliot and dawson in their foreword itself very clearly say look you guys keep accusing the british did this the british did that look what the mughals did to you i clearly remember reading eliot and dawson's foreword and they mention that and look just because they wrote that one paragraph i think each and every marxist historian in india has literally taken that and again this is a straw man where look dawson and eliot said this are what has that got to do with everything else in that book they are just stating the facts yes dawson and eliot were apologists of the british empire even i accept that but when we are looking at the evidence of the mughal court historians what has that got to do with so aditya how do we solve this third part of you like jadunath sarkar you know he becomes a good historian when he suits the ideological motives of one side he becomes a bad historian when he suits the ideological motives of the other i mean how do we decipher the truth in such a scenario aditya so i, I mean it's a it's a great question so so there are two i two parts so first is how what is the standard to under to evaluating scholarship there and i would i mean uh, on the matters of history i would def, i would unhesitantly say that kedar is sort of my mentor or he, i would say he is my mentor and he told me when we in the process of writing this piece he told me multiple times uh, a beautiful line by so uh, is it by rc muzumdar or uh, someone i don't remember where the line is that a historian is worth only the evidence he presents so you know this all of this is about the the, the parts you said where look eliot and dawson said this and blah 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 this is about interpreting their evidence what is the contribution of eliot and dawson it's to translate and bring it in front of us now sure they may have whatever motives they had it's it's completely possible and i agree that they wanted to they were apologists of the british empire but what matters is what is the evidence behind their claims if they claim that 
British did ex- uh, like look at what Mughals did to you, and relatively we are much better. They would present evidence for against Mughals for that, and in favor of the British for that. Now, what all we have to evaluate is: are there evidences about Mughals true? Are there evidences about British true? Now, uh, someone else will bring us evidence about what the what horrific things things the British did, and when we put in put together all the evidence an aggregate picture will emerge so i think the the first part of your question is or answer to the the first part of the question which is how does one recon, uh, like have a standard i think the standard is the evidence you bring i mean it is very interesting because uh because after we wrote the piece the, there was some interaction on twitter about this piece where uh one person claimed that you know this uh, this thing uh, uh there is even some uh, document in hindi uh, hindu uh scriptures which say that if you win a war against a di- against a different king then you should destroy uh, their temples and there's a clear procedure now uh, i was a bit taken aback because i didn't know about this and so i press this person to give the exact evidence and the evidence was eaton's speech a youtube video of eaton's speech now we went mm-hmm. to the speech and we went to the the document that was quoted in the speech and the document does not have any mention of such a prescription so what is the worth of a historian it is the evidence if you cannot so would i claim that no hindu uh, scripture claims uh, or prescribes demolishing temples no i wouldn't because i don't know but if you take a claim that xyz document prescribes you to do this then you better back it up so it's all about evidence and i mean in today so so that is this the first thing uh, you bring evidence and then even in our piece there is not one thing which we are not able to back by evidence that is how it should be now how does one find truth in this so i think that that question is really about how many are interested in finding truth i think that the the most of the problem is from that uh, uh, people because history unfortunately is so tied to the contemporary politics that that truth is a uh, is a casualty in that uh, mm-hmm. so so how does one find truth i mean the aggregate evidence people from all sides will present the evidence that uh, so that uh, supports their theory and we can we can then aggregate so when it comes to political motives we have uh, taken we have tried to present the evidence that about temple desecration and we have taken the best of uh position that was our evidence offered by eaton and the likes and we think that there is no case to be made i i think that that probably is the way to go all right so in in the piece but uh, i think only for fairness i think i have to ask this question i mean you guys do mention it but in one of the analogies you yourself use the political motive analogy in the piece right at the latter at the end of the piece so so if i was to come back to you and say but aditya you just 
you know wrote the entire first point dismantling how political motives should not be considered in such a serious issue but then in the end you yourself are using a political motive what would your answer to be uh, be oh, this, this is absolutely true and we were fully aware of this so which is why we are not saying that every demolition was religious our point is look when there is a political motive it's very easy to find a story like it's you don't have to go too far so i i i sort of expect so i tell you the timeline the so for the readers i am i don't expect our viewers i don't expect everyone to have uh, to have uh, read our piece so so this is per- pertaining to the point on uh, this banaras farman where aurangzeb said that do not build new temples and do not destroy old temples and our, our argument is that this order of do not destroy old temples is coming from a political motive because aurangzeb was consolidating power then so what had happened was uh, this banaras farman is from 28th february 1659 and uh on 5th january 1659 so barely a month and a half before or two months before uh, there was a battle in khajua between aurangzeb and his brother shuja uh, and shuja fled to banaras and the argument we have is that uh, to prevent uh, bana ban- the brahmins from banaras to help shuja and uh, like to help shuja recover um aurangzeb basically wanted to pacify the situation there and that is why he gave this order now could we be 100% certain of course not uh who is to say that this the political motive uh like it's a 100% case of political motive but you know you have to look at things in totality in 1645 aurangzeb when stationed as a prince in gujarat destroys temple when in satara he destroys temples at tons of other places he destroys temples before ascending to power so jadunath sarkar's uh, uh, history of aurangzeb volume 3 as i mentioned he has like there is um, dis- uh, like temple destructions by aurangzeb there are so as i look at it right now there's one in 1645 there's one in 1659 there's one in 1661 so there are several temple desecrations uh and one can find more uh, in uh, so so there are desecrations that have happened before 1659 so uh, is the story that aurangzeb was a was um, a bigot before 1659 then for a brief period of an year or so he turned tolerant and then again he turned bigot that is the story right so so we are offering an alternative hypothesis which is that look this is the sequence of events which seems to tie very closely with the political motive now and as you rightly asked that so you are using the political motive when you suit, when it suits to you no we are not i mean we for for vishwanath temple if you offer a convincing political story yeah maybe there was one but the the best story that eton offered is that shivaji fled from agra in 1666 and that's why temples were vishwanath was destroyed in 1669 now there are several loopholes here a gap of 3 years as opposed to that we have a gap of a, of 2 months i mean this i think these are just very different stories 
Fair enough. Now, Aditya, let's now, because I think it's very important to take a few questions from the live viewers too. And we have some very interesting questions. So I'm going to start taking questions now. Um, mm -hmm. So I'll take the name of the person in, in case uh, it, there is one. So Shreyans Patel has asked, don't you think because the, the non-left in India or right, he uses the word the right in India, keeps on criticizing good emperors like Akbar and Tipu, the left uh, keeps on defending bigots like Aurangzeb and Khilji. Now, uh, now you can you can disagree with the framing itself, and maybe you can say uh, this is this framing itself is wrong. But uh, how would you feel about this question? So, I don't have a view on. So his question presupposes that Aurangzeb and Tipu were good rulers. I haven't read. No, no. His uh, question supposes that uh, Aurangzeb and Khilji uh, were Akbar, bad rulers. Akbar, yeah, Akbar and Tipu were, were good rulers. Yeah. So I haven't read uh, enough history from their empires to know whether they were good or not. So it's very hard for me to take a view on uh, whether the non-left, so to say, is is uh, unfairly criticizing. Some some rulers versus others. Also, twist It could be that the reason the left has started defending Aurangzeb till a certain extent is so that you know maybe we don't overanalyze what Akbar and many other uh, you know Mughal uh, Mughals did too. Could that also be a possibility? Absolutely. I mean, it's quite possible, right? Because so. In Shah Jahan's era, for example, 76 temples were de demolished in Banaras. Uh, uh, this comes from Bachanama, I think. So, so I, I think one has to sit and really go look at the evidence for each of these. For Akbar, I mean, from what I know very vaguely, is that there are two, two interesting halves to his life. First, uh, first half, he was not known for particular form of tolerance, and the second half, he, he had he was reformed. Uh, but as I said, that and, and in case of Tipu, uh, I, I haven't heard of a lot of... Uh, so there is a science and technology aspect of Tipu for which he is uh, somewhat praised. Uh, but there's also the religious side for which uh, he's not particularly known for a lot of, uh, for I would say, good things. So I don't know in what sense is the non-left wrong. In, uh, in criticizing Akbar and Tipu, but that's just because my lack of knowledge, so I wouldn't comment much. All right. So another question is from Vivek Sinha. So obviously he calls her Lady Teja because that's the name I have given her, Audrey. So he says, Audrey claims that uh, demolitions were more political rather than religious, but the act of desecration looks to be properly a religious one. Why... Why, I think what they're saying is why the need to defend such acts would be what makes people defend such acts. Now, that I think is very unfair. How can you psychoanalyze what Audrey is thinking? Uh, you're not her therapist. So I, I definitely won't expect you. But in general, uh, don't you think this is a peculiar malaise? This 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 habit of denialism and negationism, and don't get me wrong, I think negationism and denialism is practiced by both sides in India, albeit on different subjects. I think the left practices negationism and denialism on the record of Islam in India. 
and i think the non left in my opinion practices again this is my opinion this is not aditya's opinion so please don't attribute what i say to aditya but uh, in my opinion the non left uh, in a very weird way practices denialism or negationism especially in the matter of caste in india but how, so do, how do we deal with this then so yeah i mean uh, so I, i i'm glad that you clarified that i don't have the opinion that uh, left practices denialism on islam in india because i don't have a view on islam in india i want to make it very clear i have only and only a view on aurangzeb's rule in india and uh, that's about it uh, so uh, so yeah and why why is uh, so i haven't i mean as i said that i wanted to restrict to scholarly work so i have read keaton's work and why is he presenting this thesis of political motive it's very hard for me to understand why uh, to me the uh, when it comes to aurangzeb the evidence is fairly clear so he could have steered clear of that so why didn't he is i i would say for him to answer <laughs> all right so again this question is very interesting somebody manav chandra has asked this is aurangzeb a normal islamic ruler or an odd psychopath on religious rampage if we were to compare his cruelties to previous and other islamic rulers like this is actually a very interesting thing so if we were to you know compare rulers in terms of their you know capacity of destruction we would actually only know how to place aurangzeb when we do a comparative analysis between all rulers right yeah i mean if we so this is something that i don't know why it should be done i again this is because these things have a lot of implications on contemporary politics which is that that i wouldn't say that somebody needs to do it but if one does it maybe something interesting could emerge maybe we will learn that akbar was actually very tolerant and pluralistic a king and even exactly uh, shah, yeah shah jahan and jahangir were uh, like essentially continued the same policies of tolerance it is possible i'm not saying it did happen or did not happen i'm just saying if one does it systematically maybe we will, one will find uh, a clear pattern but you know these things are are very very hard to do i mean one has to learn persian then decide so masiri alam so jaduna sarkar did uh, tremendous work in translating a lot of this work into english so this is not the, all these state orders how are these these books were written in persian uh, or uh, or for state orders were it all written in farsi so one has to translate all of them and it's there there was no google translate then where you would get first block like it's just so imagine the amount of work that someone like jadunath sarkar has done to bring forward so much of primary source material now one has to do that for akbar and jahangir and as one goes back it's the evidence is harder to find so this is i mean i was i'm actually So I went to the Hyderabad State Archives recently, and if one goes there, it's, it's very hard. It's uh, to just like sit with these volumes of farmans and get them translated. So it's so yeah, someone should do it. Uh, who will bring the the funding for and scholars for that? I am not. Uh, and and why should one do it? I'm not saying for politics. Again, why should one do it? Is for just for understanding. 
how were different kings i mean uh, you know when it comes to conflict like there are there are uh, so since india like hindu muslim muslim conflict is very um, very common in india one view is that this is a clash of civilizations that is these two religions will never meet or see eye to eye and the other is that no we can exist in harmony and we have done so uh, so for both of these views one scholarship would more evidence and history would help so but yeah one has to find scholars and find funding I and mean, funding is the real bottleneck in all of these things you hire all right so I, i'll be a bit long winded here but like you imagine a one full time historian will take will need say 3 years of 3 to 4 years of full time work to have uh, some of these things translated so just like you're looking at some and then travel and everything so you're looking at like a few 1 crore or something like that so it's, it's a lot of involved process mm. so harsha has asked why should we not discuss shedsworker riyasatkar and purandare why only rely on jadunath sarkar no no i am not saying we shouldn't discuss uh, shezwalkar or anyone i am just saying for for the topic that was uh, of my interest or our interest kedar and i uh, like our arguments we could do using shezwalkar and we have we have discussed setuma uh, we could do using jadunath sarkar and we have discussed setuma dora pagdi we could we didn't discuss gh khare but like it's not of i am a marathi myself so why would i be biased against i think the the, the subtle undertone there is that why not discuss marathi historians and i mean it's there's nothing against setu madhara pagdi we have discussed we we, uh, we cited his work gh khare we haven't but so so of course we can it's just the topic has to be there fair enough so on vivek sinha has asked apart from temple desecration what other prominent farmans were issued that were uh, religious in nature by aurangzeb did did anything stand out to you guys when you were going through the farmans so uh, this is definitely a question for out and out for kedar so i would say that you should have him on your show one day because he like not just aurangzeb he can talk about a lot of history but if i remember correctly of the top of my head there were farmans issued about uh, say say diwali celebrations and jazia and sting, things like that so accounts and finance to even celebrations uh, so but but i i wouldn't be uh, able to like name the exact evidence but those are all there in actually this uh, mystery of aurangzeb volume 3 about page 250 to 268 so that is where uh, you find so i mean I, actually i have this in front of me open and like there is a section where hindus excluded from public offices jadunath sarkar hindu fairs put down so these are separate sections where uh, so aurangzeb revived the same policy uh, so of uh, uh, a very grand fair of this kind used to be held at a tank in the village of malwa up to the 14th century but firoz shah tughlaq put it down with bloodshed aurangzeb revived the same policy in 1668 forbade such fairs throughout his dominions that is what jadunath sarkar said now i i haven't verified the source that sarkar has used but 
you don't generally find sarkar fabricating things like the way uh, yeah anyway so you don't find sarkar fabricating things so this would be true so th there would be farmans like this now this is not about temple desecration but just general bigotry of aurangzeb Fair, fair enough. So, okay. So, before we wrap things up, uh, uh, Aditya, so is there anything else that you want to talk about? Any particular projects that you're working on? Anything else that is there? Uh, you know, if you if you want to tell us about that. Sure. So, as I said, uh, I mean, uh, so, so Kedar, I and another economist, we are actually uh, uh, actively trying to understand the economic impact if there was any of. religious conflict in uh, in medieval uh, or early modern india i we want i want to emphasize that this is not uh, we couldn't care less about the contemporary politics and its implications on that so but to understand the impact of religious conflict on economic divergence we want to un we want a reliable data set on uh, on the instances of religious conflict and uh, so we are thinking of basically conjuring up funds uh, from some sources or uh, i would shamelessly say that if you if there are people willing on your channel if someone thinks this is a worthwhile goal and they want to contribute towards that i mean it's it would be great uh, so so to build a data set of such violence so that we can examine uh, whether what is the cost economic cost of these violence uh, but it remains to be seen how how far one goes with this but that's a project that we have thought of we will do uh, kedar and i and then there is a bunch of exciting stuff that kedar is doing uh, that i like one day i mean he is writing a book on forts he is uh, he is also he he has a fantastic uh, thesis on uh, on the it's not called the administrative system of marathas but it is more on the administration side of the maratha empire and it's uh, it's a very well of course it's he is a serious historian so it's a very well researched piece so i hope that turns into a book uh, that some like people viewers of your channel would enjoy uh, reading all right so somebody one last question i think this is a very interesting question so i'm just going to ask you this one so somebody has asked did aurangzeb do anything good for his people did he have any redeeming qualities for the terrible things he did with respect to religion did you find anything good that he did i mean uh, anything good is a subjective thing but i would say that uh, that he was a he was an insanely uh, efficient king i mean uh, so i have forgotten the source now but there is uh, i think jadunath sarkar only or no someone else but basically there was there's account that aurangzeb paid very close attention to daily hearings in court and i mean look at the, the man was on the battlefield at the age of 85 uh, i hope all of us live until that age but i am not very confident that even if we do so we will be able to be on a, a cricket field playing at at the age of 85 and i mean this man was like full on uh, on a battlefield so i and he lived very 
he lived very frugally i mean he, when he died there were clear instructions that he that the money be donated and everything so uh, so to the to that extent i mean there is i am sure if one look, looks examines more they will probably find some other good qualities but come on the man them the man ruled over such a vast empire and and fought so many wars and like so so there are obviously several redeeming qualities in him as a as how he fought uh, i why why nothing came of it in the end or rather immediately after his death the mughal empire started uh erode like basically declining is i think he he got embroiled in too many conflicts but but the sheer act of having the tenacity to fight these i think is something quite admirable admirable is probably the wrong Fair word enough. but like just the fact that he at that age he could fight those battles is, is something remarkable yeah uh, yeah I, i get what you're coming from you know the thing with aurangzeb is is very hard to defend aurangzeb you know best of luck convincing the sikh the sikh community because especially when it comes to the sikh community i mean aurangzeb has already you know he he is already uh, quite known in the historical records of you know assassinating a sikh guru too so yeah so that, that's what i say you know you might you might spin yarns of apology around it best of luck doing that with the sikh community they're not going to accept it at all and you know even in in the historical circles i know there is this whole back and forth not only is there back and forth with you know within the hindu community and the muslim community there is another set of back and forth between the sikh community and the and the uh, the marxist historian community also so like i always say when it comes to aurangzeb you know best of luck best of luck on that that, that one you know go convince the sikh uh, sikh community unke guru ki hatya ke baad agar aap bologe ki he was a benevolent guy you know uh, convince them but but i don't understand why is there uh, like yeah i think in case of aurangzeb uh, there are to the extent that there is possible with every human being i mean there are blacks and whites but the sum total of it is very very clear i mean uh, there is not uh, a lot of ambiguity about his contributions to uh, to things so i i actually don't understand no i i agree with you aditya and i guess you know uh, uh, that that's a whole point that you know uh, as someone who del you know i i always talk about morals and ethics and i think uh, as, a, as a moral objectivist i think we should not shy away from making moral judgments about figures from the past uh, uh we should not do that i i i certainly don't and and to me it does not matter again these are my views not not as it is but you know whether it's the hindu no, figure actually, jain figure buddhist figure i mean we I, should judge them i i have no problems i think we should judge what's wrong in judging i mean and i i agree with the view that we should not apply today's standards to uh, to those times i mean just today like that that is a completely was uh, so on issues like gender and all the society has evolved massively so if we go back to uh, 17th century and evaluate uh, say shivaji and aurangzeb uh, on gender issues they will all come out probably as uh, as absolutely horrible but the the comparison we should have is not shivaji versus aurangzeb from today standard but shivaji versus aurangzeb from that standard 
was so aurangzeb's contemporary king was shivaji now were they equally religiously equally tolerant or intolerant that is a comparison to be made and and i think that judgment we should not shy away from what's the point of shying like what's the point so we should only say good things i don't see what's the point of scholarship and research if that's the only thing fair enough fair enough so so i guess we'll wrap things up now uh, aditya once again thanks a lot for coming on the podcast and sharing your views i know this is a contentious subject i don't know why it is contentious but uh, i i have never understood why the truth is contentious but i guess you know, everything is politicized this day so i really first of all appreciate you coming on the podcast and also appreciate you writing that uh, you know essay with uh, kedar so on behalf of the you know the viewers and listeners of the charbak podcast uh, thanks a lot Oh, thanks a lot uh, kushal for having me and i'm i must profusely apologize for delaying this for so long uh, but it was great uh, talking to you and uh, explaining some of the things or our positions better from this uh, i hope uh, this was useful to your viewers Oh, oh, this is this is going to be really liked by my viewers because my viewers always look for serious arguments. So, guys, time to wrap today's discussion up. So, I'll just leave you guys with my closing comments. Again, these are my comments, not Aditya's. So, always remember that. So, as you see today's T-shirt, I'm wearing a T-shirt. So, first of all, please support the Charvak Podcast. Go and buy buy the Charvak Podcast merch on kushalmehra.com/shop. You know, and I I want to say this, uh, and these are my views, and I've always said this a long time, even before on the podcast. Look, as far as i'm concerned aurangzeb is a will hill i'm willing to die on you know i just uh, i can tolerate a lot of mental gymnastics that are done in indian socio political discourse this is something i find uh, you know really abhorrent that uh, it, it's everything is mired in politics in india i don't know why look history is a is a record of events that when we look back today we are going to have problems with it and we have to deal with it as human beings you cannot have truth and reconciliation on the basis of lies it never happens it never happens on the basis of lies so we should never shy away from knowing the truth and we should also not shy away from calling out those people who blame people today for somebody's uh some just because they are born into a community that had done some bad things in the past that's not how we deal with with things we just look at the past we judge it the way it is and then we move forward so so i'll request all of you you know have an open mind when you read history yes we're bound to know many bad things happened in our past not just you know from the mughal history you know even inside the hindu history we'll find things that we may not enjoy the point is not taking it out on people today the point is learning from them and becoming better people in the process so i hope you do that so i'll wrap today's discussion on that and once again please subscribe to the channel like the video leave your comments i have left the link of the essay that Aditya and Kedar wrote in the open magazine in the description of the podcast. So it doesn't matter if you're going to be watching this on YouTube or listening to this on uh, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the audio portals. There will be the link to the essay. I will highly recommend you guys to go and read the essay too. And then the sources that Aditya and Kedar have mentioned, you can go and read them and double check them too. And if you find any flaws, you can go out and you know reach out to Aditya on Twitter and uh, you know contact him on Twitter and maybe you know he will answer them too. But Try and have an academic discourse. You know, don't 
abuse don't attribute motives do not do those things so once again guys thanks a lot for watching or listening whenever whichever medium you are using please support the charvak podcast become a member on youtube or subscribe on patreon or buy the merch or send your donations through upi i try to have civilized discussions on contentious subjects please support this venture that i have started for the last 3 3 and a half years i'll see you guys next time until then take care goodbye